Welcome to the Discover Church Podcast. We are a Christian faith community based out of Denver, Colorado. Join us this week as we bring our uncertainties to an unchanging God. If you have any questions about the sermon, please feel free to send them in. You can email them to us at hello at discoverdenver.church. How are you this evening? Uh, my name is Jay, and I am really excited uh, to, to share with you tonight. Um, we've been in a series that we've been calling what? What have we been calling it if you've been here? That's right. It's been <laughs> it's been called. Uh, say, say it one more. When somebody say it, one person say it really loud and clear. I love my church. That's right. It's called. And, and now, are you saying that, or are you just quoting it? Anyway, I'm just kidding. No, no pressure. No pressure. I'm just just that was that was unfair. Uh, yeah, the series is called "I Love My Church," and uh, it, it's not super common in our current cultural setting that you will bump into people that will consistently say, I love my church. It's pretty common to hear people say something like, man, I love God. I love Jesus. But you might even hear people say, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. You might even hear people say, I love Jesus, or Jesus seems interesting to me, but I don't have any idea what this thing called the church is. So over the last uh, series of weeks, we've been looking at different pictures of who, uh, what the church is that are given to us in the scriptures, um, and kind of looking at uh, the, the breadth of the ways that people have understand through history what it means to be the people of God, to be the church. And I, I got to be honest with you, I've really enjoyed uh, doing this together. I mean, um, I, I do this for a living. And yet still, you lose track sometimes in the different mundane realities of what it is to do any kind of thing, right? And man, it has been so impactful for me to, again, look back on all these different images of what it means to be the church. And uh, I don't know, my heart's been captured. I think, I, think, I think we should just, I think we should do this. No one else. Nathan, can we do this together? Do this thing called the church? Yeah. Okay, great. So... So Nathan and I will. And, and tonight, we're going to look at something that, frankly, I think, you know, just, just as I get to talk to people, and specifically I'm with people that are even in this thing called church, that often in American culture, specifically Western American culture, and in the West in general, we're a little disoriented by what we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, frankly, what we'll talk about tonight is not usually one of the things that people from a Western faith background think about at all. And yet it's central in how we understand what it is to be the church and to be a part of the story of God, what God is doing in the world, and specifically how God is showing himself in this thing called the scriptures. And, uh, well, honestly, I, I don't know if you've ever noticed when church types answer questions about God and it's as though they're making it worse. Have you ever experienced this? It's like you're 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 doing it wrong. Like you got you're making it worse when people are trying to figure out what's going on. Like in a crisis, have you ever been in a funeral and heard the things people say about God at a funeral because people are in pain? Maybe maybe you've had a loved one die near you, and 
people come up to you at a funeral and say like exceptionally stupid things intending to make you feel better. Like, uh, have you ever heard someone say, um, I guess God just wanted another angel? No, no. Or, 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 um, you know, I guess this is just like what God planned. This is what he intended. When someone's lost a child or a, a sibling or a spouse. Some of you right now are very quiet because you're like, I think I think I said that. Uh, and 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 we'll and we'll we'll talk about that. Have no fear. And and this is confusing. This is confusing for church people. This is confusing, especially in the way that we relate with those um, that maybe haven't been in life with God or around life with Jesus, because they say, "Wait a minute, I, I've heard you guys say more than once that God is good." And that he's kind and that he's generous. And so how is it that when we say that God is good, these horrible, awful things are happening that we're ascribing to him? How do we make sense of such a thing? Have you ever had a moment like that in your life where maybe you're even, maybe, you know, we just sang some songs. Talk about the goodness of God, the kindness of God, the graciousness of God. But you're coming in with, something very painful, very difficult, where you're going, how can God be good and this be what I'm going through today? How can I open up the paper and see what's going on in Puerto Rico or any number of things happening around the world and still somehow in my mind believe that God is good? And here's the thing, if you're not wrestling with that tonight, you might not be in a scenario that you're actually trying to process that. I guarantee you someone around you is. And I promise you, you will at some point in your life. You're going to have to grapple with who you believe God is and the pain of what's going on uh, in the world. Uh, Just a few weeks ago, I had a conversation with a neighbor friend. I've been getting to know him. We've been hanging out talking. And, you know, we had that moment where you cross through the, the boundary of like, like, real conversation. You ever have that experience? You know, there's like this thin veil and it's like, oh, now, oh, we're in now. You know, you're moving from like the Broncos and the weather and, you know, like things like that. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, that, this is what we're doing. So it'd been weeks of, you know, I've, I've talked to him, I don't know, a few dozen times. And then there we are. And he just says, okay, man, you're, you're a pastor. I'm like, yeah. He's like, you seem, you seem mostly normal. <laughs> um, thank, thank you. You know, I, I wasn't sure what, what to do. What would you do with it? Anyway, so I would thank you. And he says, I have a real question. I have a real thought. I said, great, I'm in. He said, so when I was, I can't remember the exact day, year, but it was like 10 or 12. I'm 10 or 12. And I walk into my home to find that my dad has killed, killed himself. I've been raised in church. And all of a sudden I have to say somehow that God is good and this is my life. Help me get that. How does that make any sense? How can I come to people like you and you tell me God is good, he loves me. How do I make sense of that? 
And I, I studied philosophy. That's my background. And so, you know, you know, almost by reflex, like 20 different things flick through my mind. Like, should, is this Leibniz's theodicy argument? Should it be C.S. Lewis's problem of pain thought? Maybe, maybe I could draw an argument from Blaise Pascal's The Pensee. And they just flick through my mind. And of course, I'm looking at my friend Mike and thinking, no, no. This is a real moment. This is real painful. And he's genuinely in pain, not just because of the experience, but because the, the answers he's heard from followers of Jesus, from people who have life with God, are woefully inadequate. You know, they're saying, well, God must have a plan in some way. Or, you know, he needed another angel in heaven. Does not suffice. I wonder how you think about that. It's worth just pausing, just before, you, before we just keep l- listening forward into whatever else we're going to say. How do you do that? Just right now, just kind of take your own temperature. Maybe you're here and you're not following Jesus. You have no, you're like, I don't even know how I got here tonight. Someone tricked me. I thought, I, th- I just thought there was food. I didn't know there was this part. I don't know. I don't know what you're doing here. So any number of things could bring you to a room like this night. So th- th- there's that. But if you would say you're a follower of Jesus, what do you do? What do you tell a friend like Mike? How do you make sense of such a thing for your own life? Um, of course, these aren't just academic questions. They're necessary to make sense of the world that we truly live in. Now, the scriptures paint a picture of a life with God that I, I just have to, again, be clear, I think is mostly foreign in the Western mind and in the Western thinking of the church. The scriptures paint a picture that God is at war and that there is a cosmic battle that is raging around us all the time and that God isn't the author of evil and destruction and death and sickness but that God is fighting to reclaim this broken, blown up, messed up place. This starts right at the beginning of Genesis. God creates the world perfectly, it's beautiful, and it all falls apart. The authority that he's entrusted to people is spent the wrong way, and like cracking a window in this beautiful place, all of a sudden evil comes pouring in and begins to pollute every atom of this creation. Humans are polluted. The creation itself is polluted. And with only a few chapters of Genesis, people start murdering each other. And they're conniving and manipulating and using power to leverage one another instead of serve and care and live in this beautiful place. And this begins to just spin forward. And the Bible from the beginning to the end is painting a picture of this cosmic battle and a struggle that's happening just beyond the view of the physical world. That the physical world is playing out and we're within it, and yet there's this thin veil. And just past the veil, there's this ferocious battle happening all the time. 
Now, in the story of, of God, uh, it shows up in all kinds of different places. Would you like to read a, a very, very strange scripture with me? Would you, would you like to? I, I think it's really just bizarre. And especially if you say, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a person of this story. Uh, this is your story. So it's, it's worth like considering it, right? Uh, so, so Daniel chapter 10, I'm going to start in verse 12. An angel is speaking to Daniel, okay? This is how it goes. Daniel, Daniel chapter 10, verse 12. Then he continued, do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Down in verse 20. Do you know why I've come to you? Soon I will return to fight the prince of Persia, and when I go, the prince of Greece will come. Okay, here, here's, what, here's what this angel says to Daniel. You bowed your knee to pray, and you prayed, and a signal was sent into heaven. And I was sent as an angel to answer your prayer that instant. And yet, it took me some time to get to you because I had to fight my way through a series of cosmic battles to stand before you now and to answer your prayer. And as soon as I'm done talking to you, I'm actually going to go fight my way all the way back through a whole series of battles. Oh, and in the middle of that, the archangel Michael flew down and he like fought with me for a while. Like, I wonder what you think's happening when you pray. Like, is that in your mind? You know, you go to pray and you just imagine suddenly like some kind of battle erupts in the heavens. That's what, that's what, Dan, that's what is, that's what it's saying here. That something happens as human beings who are connected to God begin to engage God in prayer that it initiates and engages in this battle that's happening that's thinly veiled just outside of our vision. By the way, this is happening all through the story of the Bible. We could, I mean, we could look all kinds of places. Uh, there's this crazy thing Jacob has happened where he's walking along and he goes to sleep somewhere and he sees an open vision. Something happens where his eyes can see through the physical world and he sees into the spiritual world for, for just a second. And, and it's, it's a strange description in the Bible. It says that it looks like something like ladders that are going up and down into heaven and angels are climbing up and down ladders and coming back down. And, Dan, and, and Jacob has this very strange experience and he blurts out, How, oh my goodness, I had no idea that God was here. And he has this interesting dialogue where uh, he hears, yeah, that's kind of just like what's always happening. There's this other really strange story where uh, Elisha's out in this, out way away from this town and another king is like, we're going to go kill that prophet because that guy somehow hears from God. We need to stop him. So he raises this army and he surrounds his home and he's going to kill this guy because somebody hears from God and he's moving in the power of God and this earthly king is like, we have to stop him. So he puts his whole army around him. And uh, this prophet is sleeping and his surgeon, ser servant walks up in the morning, wakes up and he walks outside and he sees all the armies while he's sipping his coffee. He goes, oh no, they found us, we're dead. 
And he walks back in and he wakes up his master and goes, there's armies that are surrounding us. We're going to die. Elisha walks out with his servant. He looks at all the armies. He goes, oh, no, we're, we're fine, man. Don't worry. He goes, we're fine? He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's way more that are with us than are against us. There's no way we can lose. And the servant goes, one, two. What are you saying? This is, are you like, you're like, you've lost it. You just had a nervous breakdown. And Elisha does some kind of very strange thing. It says he waves his hand over the servant's face. He just kind of goes like this. And he says, Lord, let him see. And it says, and the servant looks up and sees on the hillside over this army, a heavenly army with numbers that can't be counted. And so something happens where he's allowed to see not just what's in the physical space in front of him, but what's happening in this cosmic battle that's swirling around them. Page after page of the Bible shows us this. And when we flip then into the New Testament, as people are encountering life with God through Jesus, we see this story, this way of seeing the world, pushing all the way through into what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, We could read passages all night long. But here's one. Here's, Here's an interesting one. Paul finishes this amazing letter to the church of Ephesus. It's this great letter. And at the end of the letter, he's like, I'm going to finish up here. And in uh, Ephesians chapter 6, this is what he says. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle, listen to this. This is Paul writing to the church. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And he says next, therefore put on the full armor of God. So when the day of evil comes, you can make your stand. And he goes on and he describes the armor of God. That somehow spiritually, you're in a battle every day. He says, therefore, get suited up, dummy. Like, like, you know, what kind of a, a moron just goes walking around the battlefield and then is surprised when they get beat up and get shot at and get hurt? He says, do you not understand what's going on out there? This isn't just like life enhancement thoughts. This is like what's happening. And when you've entered into life with God, something has happened that you've joined a war that has been raging for a long time. And now you're in the middle of it. So suit up so that you don't get beat up. So that you can manage what's happening. Now, he, he doesn't just describe it that way. When he goes to describe some of his workers, some of his friends, people that are doing the stuff he's doing, um, talking about Jesus, serving the poor, fighting against injustice in the world, he'll refer to them as his fellow soldiers. He does it over and over in the scriptures. Philippians chapter 2, there's a guy named Epaphroditus, which I feel like someone here should name their child. It's a great name. Pappy. (laughs) Epaphroditus says, he's my brother, my co-worker, and fellow soldier. And Philemon, he's referring to a whole bunch of people, and he lists a whole bunch of them and says, these people are fellow soldiers who fight along with me. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 
Paul, again, uses this imagery of a war, of a battle, and what it means to come into life with Jesus. Listen to what he says, 2 Corinthians 10. For though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. He uses the picture and says that the enemy, the evil forces of the world, build effectively fortified towers. And that those towers uh, are in the systems of this world. And they fortify themselves. And what it means to know and follow Jesus isn't just you're putting on your armor to defend yourself, but we're given weapons to smash these things and claim and take back territory that has been corrupted and broken in the world, that you are in a war and you are intended not just to try to survive, but to fight, to take on addictions and worry and hurry and busyness and injustice and pain and sickness and death. For those are the things corrupting the world and that is what you have been called into. The history of the church the church has referred to themselves as the army of God. Now, this has been used badly in church history. If you've studied a little church history, you know that from time to time people go, and therefore we will kill people. Uh, I would just refer to, I mean, you know, footnote crusades. Uh, but, But effectively what Paul's saying is, no, 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 it's a different kind of war. We have different kinds of weapons, and we're up to a different kind of fight. And we are fighting as an army against injustice and tyranny and the broken things of this world. Now, we see this, of course, in Jesus very dramatically. When Jesus, the king, comes and steps among the evil darkness of this world, a a rebel territory, and the king walks in, clothed in power the world begins to shudder in his presence. Uh, It's actually amazing how many funny stories happen in the Gospels. If you see, uh, for example, he comes to church at the beginning of of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, and as he walks into church, there are demons that are hiding right behind the veil of the physical world in his presence. And because the king has come and walked among them, these demons are being just bombarded with the power of heaven in the midst of what's dark, and they can't stand it. And over and over, you see this happen in Jesus' ministry. While he's walking around, a demon will just start screaming random things. It's like like they can't manage it. There's this one in uh, Mark, which I love, where the demon screams out, we know who you are, the Holy One of God. You're here to destroy us. I mean, think of the dumb things a demon could say. Like, that's a dumb thing. Like, I'm right here. You know, like, but it's as though, it's as though it just can't stand in the presence of heaven. And it screams out. And if you know the story, as it screams out, it says, and Jesus points and says, shut up. Come out of him. And the guy goes, ah, and then like shrieks out this demon. And imagine, like, everybody in church, they just go, what is this? This is so different than the other rabbis. You know, like, usually we sit through boring sermon after boring sermon, but this guy, this carpenter from Galilee, 
is bringing with him power. So much so that the demons can't even stand in his presence. And sure enough, that's the ministry of Jesus. He walks around and he doesn't just talk about things. He does things. Where he puts his hands, he says, this is what heaven looks like. And the kingdom of God invades the kingdom of this world through the king. And he puts his hands on people and their eyes open. And dead people rise. And people go, whoa. Neo. Jesus is the king. Except you know the plot twist. As he's doing these incredible things and he's pointing to the kingdom of God, the plot twist is they grab him and they strip him naked and they beat him and they mock him. They put a sign up that says the king of the Jews and they drive nails into his hands and into his feet. And he is ashamed and dies. And all that we're following went, ah, oh. yet again, the darkness wins. And they go off, scuttle off to whatever they used to do. Peter goes back to fishing, you know, it's like, oh, that's, that sucked. Let's go fish. Right? I mean, they, they're just depressed. And yet, you know, the story. I mean, think of how cool it would be to hear this story afresh. Like, <laughs> he, he's risen. The power of God raises him from the dead. And he stands victorious. And the New Testament writers, page after page after page, place this death and resurrection in the story of the cosmic war. They, it's like they can't shut their mouths about it. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, he has triumphed over the dark forces of this world. He has disarmed the powers of evil. That's Colossians 1. Romans chapter 8, when they're talking about all the things that are going wrong, Paul says, and he is a conqueror, for he conquered death, and he rose again. So how much more than are we conquerors, he says, to the people who follow this risen Christ. And he is risen and he is seated at the right hand of god he's triumphed over his enemies they gave it their best shot and he rose in power it's a pretty cool story huh now if you're listening uh you should be thinking something like um jay i don't know i don't know if you're maybe missed missed something but it doesn't feel like he won because the world is still like a, a nightmare have you lost track? You can't say that Jesus won at the cross and then say that there's evil still being born out in the world. Now, theologians have a very clear way of describing this because the scriptures describe it really clearly. Uh, the illustration we'll use will be from uh, World War II. Any World War II history buffs here? Good. <laughs> Zero. So I can say anything I want. Uh, no, no, I won't, though. No, no World War II history, but not one. Okay, okay, how about this? Let's try something a little more popular culture. Anyone seen Saving Private Ryan? Okay, okay, only four of you. <laughs> Man, uh, wow. Engaged, engaged audience. Well, here's, here's the way one theologian describes 
the difference between what is called D-Day and what is called V-Day in the history of World War II. This, this is how it's described. I think I have it. When the Allied forces landed in Normandy, the decisive battle of the whole war was fought. After that, it was certain that, the, that Nazi Germany was going to lose. That's the first scene of Saving Private Ryan, if you've seen the movie. Wave after wave of person hits the beaches of Normandy. And when they captured that beach and bust through the lines of Nazi Germany, uh, they knew it's over. We won. We've established a beachhead. We can run allied troops in here as much as we want. We are going to overrun Europe. It's just going to be a matter of time now. The, the, it was over. The victory was won. However, if you know uh, some of the history of World War II, um, between D-Day, the day of the invasion, and V-Day, the day of the Allies' victory, the Germans fought a number of desperate fallback battles across Europe. Many lives were lost and much damage done before they finally surrendered. Um, many historians would say that there were more casualties in the window between D-Day and V-Day than the rest of the war combined. So though the war was won, the violence was not finished. For they kept holding every square inch in sort of an angry defiance and forcing the battle to rage. So many lives were lost, much damage was done. But after the decisive battle in Normandy, it was clear how the war was going to turn out. The war was already won, even though it was not yet over. Now listen to this, how it relates to life with Jesus. I hope you can see it already. The decisive battle of all of human history was fought when in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God invaded a world ruled and tormented by the dark powers of evil. But the final victory of God over them will come only with the final triumph of the risen Christ at the end of history. Between the times, the deadly battle between God and the powers of darkness still goes on. But the victory of Christ has been won and it is the guarantee of the final victory that is surely on the way. You and I stand in between the times, have been conscripted, enlisted in this thing that's called the army of God. We're the soldiers in Christ's army fighting injustice and darkness and pain and evil and bringing to bear what is sure to come. That there will be a day not long from this one. All will seem but a strange dream. As there's no death, there's no pain. And all is made well and right in the world. This is what the scriptures teach. But you and I now live in this in-between time. Where the fight rages. And the people of God stand as the emissaries and the ambassadors and the soldiers in this army to reclaim that which has been taken and is dark and broken. Now, I hope if you listen to this, you can see the implications that just flood forward, right? Uh, you begin to realize that this thing of following Jesus is not a life enhancement plan. You know, it isn't just like, you know, I feel like I have four out of ten happy days. And if I follow Jesus, I'm hoping for seven do you know what I mean? Like that this reframes the entire understanding of what it is to crash into life with God and what it means to be his people. 
and to live life together. Let, let's use an illustration, and, and this is kind of how we'll wrap up. Here's an illustration. Here, let's imagine that you live in Colorado. Done. Okay, good. And let's imagine you've done well in your life. You know, you've made some money. So you made a little money. You got a little money on the side. And you just hate the, the Colorado winters. You just hate the snow. You hate, you hate how it gets cold. And you've heard of a mythical place called Hawaii. Has anyone here been to Hawaii? It is like a mythical land, isn't it? It's like, is this a real place? You know, if you've, anyway, so, so it's this mythical land called Hawaii. And so you decide, I have a little money. I'm going to buy another house in Hawaii. And it's going to be near the beach. And when it gets cold in Colorado, we'll just go to Hawaii and live in this mythical place. Because, you know, we've done well. Why not do this? So here's the problem. You're buying this house. Uh, in 1941. And you go to visit this home right in the winter as it's starting. You go in December for the first part of December. And you're going to go, you know, through the, through the new year on the holidays. You have your nice house on the beach. And it's, it happens to be near a naval base. And the first week you're there, it's amazing. You know, you buy some kayaks and you're kayaking around in some rivers and lakes, do a little cliff diving, eat some pineapple, some papaya. And you're like, this is the best decision ever. This is working out so well. And then on December 7th, you wake up in the morning and walk out onto your little veranda to enjoy a cup of coffee only to see, hear a strange noise. And as you look in the sky, you see squadron after squadron of planes flying overhead. And the earth begins to shake. This is the moment that the U.S. was pulled into a world war that they were, we were doing everything to avoid. But in the bombing of Pearl Harbor, we were thrust into a war that we were trying to avoid. Now, you're there on vacation, right? I mean, you know, like, this is, this is vacation. I mean, imagine this happens, and then some people come from the base and say, we need to use your house. We're going to have some of the wounded rest up here. And you go, ooh, oh, I'm so, I'm really sorry. But we have like a whole day of kayaking planned today. It's a very busy day for us. And we've, we've lived our whole lives and worked hard for this kind of holiday. Not only are you making a bad decision, you're actually doing something immoral at that point. You're actually ignoring the reality of what's happening. You can't just return to your vacation mode when you become aware that there's a war that's raging around you. When you begin to see, and if this is true, it makes sense of things. I find that even people that don't know Jesus or believe in God or aren't even sure what they think about God, when you talk to them in this manner, they kind of go, you know what? It does seem like there's a fight out there for the hearts and minds of people. But in this place we call America, man, we have worked really hard, like really hard to keep things shallow and comfortable and safe. And many of our faith, the faith that we have in Jesus, is really just some sort of like a Walt Disneyland type of thing. 
when if what the scripture says is true, you are in a fight. It's around you. It's for you. And it's for everyone around you. And if you know Jesus, you've put on a uniform. And it means then that this is wartime. It means you change the whole way you think about how you live. You, you know, like, for example, in America, the kind of main litmus test we have for like buying something is like, do I want it? And can I afford it? Those are the two. And if I want it and I can afford it, it's mine. Sometimes the second question is still a no and you're like, it's mine. Uh, credit card, here I come, right? But if you believe that you're in a fight, your money's no longer yours. In wartime, people spend money differently. It's invested in the effort of what it is to join this battle, this fight. Your money's not just yours. You're a part, well, you're a part of something. And the stakes are high. Your time is not your own. You can't go back to pretending like you're on holiday that the primary goal of life is to just make yourself comfortable. To sort of align a certain number of things to make sure that things are just a little bit easier for you. If I get the right mixture of essential oils <laughs> with some soft clothes, a little kind of the right stretching routine, and if I can make sure that the dishes like are out of the sink every day. Life is good. No, 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 no. No, no. Listen, if what is said in the Bible is true, it is a wake-up call. And it's something that calls us to live in a way that's way beyond what we ever imagined. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not sure what you think about God, it also is an interesting thing to consider. That all of a sudden, we're not saying God is the author of evil, that this evil is ripping through the world and God is holding back and sending in his people and winning people to himself before he comes and sets all things right again. There's this in-between time that the fight rages that you and I are a part of. And it means, man, life can be really meaningful if we join this fight if we're not just protecting ourselves. Can, can, you, can you not begin to hear William Wallace? What would you give for just one chance? Just one? Anyway, so all, the, all, those, all those things you see in movies are because they're drawing something out of us that we kind of know intuitively is probably true of the world. I wonder what this means for you. What does this mean about your money, your time, your energy? I wonder what it is that occupies your thinking about what would make your life a little bit better. This changes then what it means for us to grow near to God and what it means for us to live out a life trusting in, doesn't it? And it changes what it means for us to be the people of God, that we band together to be a part of what he's doing to reclaim this place and demonstrate his goodness and his power. So now we, uh, is it you? Now we transition to, uh, to some, some Q&A uh, if, if things came in. Uh, you can sit and then we're just going to be done here uh, briefly. We'll, we'll answer some questions. Do we have any of those? There's mics everywhere. We've almost got it figured out. Teamwork. <laughs> teamwork. Teamwork. Okay, what do you got? So, um, so, yeah, in this space we're sharing the questions that you guys were asking. And I just want to thank you for asking them and putting those in. Um, I find, like, as I'm standing up here reading these, that... 
I'm connecting to a lot of them as well. And mm. I think a lot of other people do too when you take that risk of asking. So That's great. Thanks. All right. So our first question tonight is, um, shared, I know that Jesus has won already, but sometimes my life doesn't feel like I'm winning. What do I do when I feel like I'm losing in a battle? Uh, so yeah, first of all, I'm Blake. I'm part of the biblical studies team, just here to answer questions. Uh, so going to that, um, Boom. you know, we're talking about like, what is it in a place where I'm feeling like I'm losing? So it's just, our days are made up of like all of those individual experiences in the present. And so when we're talking about that, uh, feeling like losing is kind of like maybe you had a series of events that have gone on through the week or you have a series of month or year. Uh, and so I'd say in those cases, like it feels distant and far off when we're thinking about like, oh, he's already won. That's great. But like today, like I got fired from my job. So I think what it comes down to is like this is where the point of community, the point of church is where we kind of surround ourselves with like brothers and sisters mm. so that we can get that feedback, that input that reminds us in that present moment that we are still winning, even though in that moment we may feel like we're losing. Mm. Um, and so I think that's one circumstance where it's like the value of community. Yeah, and I, I love the way the scriptures in relationship to what we talked about tonight, um, suffering is an expectation of following Jesus, not a, like a negative consequence. So if you believe that somehow life with God is just uninterrupted success where you just jump from mountaintop to mountaintop, is there anyone like that here? You should be preaching. Uh, if, it, if it is. Uh, and the encouraging thing is to see that in the, in the scriptures, no one does that. The Apostle Paul is saying, this is the, it is the suffering that demonstrates that I'm walking in accordance with what Jesus is doing. And so it doesn't mean always even you've ever done, it doesn't even necessarily mean you've done anything wrong. And I agree with what you have to say. Soldiers that run around by themselves uh, get killed. You, need, you join a battalion. Our second question is, you mentioned putting on the armor of God. What does that look like in my daily life? I think with that, we kind of go with our classic answers of just like, you know, the armor of God is kind of our daily practices. Mm -hmm. you know, who we're talking to. Uh, are you in the word and daily practice? Are you in uh, some sort of community where you can ask questions? Uh, are you in prayer direct with God? Uh, these are all our daily practices that put us in a position to be prepared for the day. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I don't know. Would you like another sermon right now? Would anyone like one? Uh, we, we could do that. Uh, I, I would, I think we should probably post something that gives some pictures of what that means because you're exactly right. It's taking on, Paul very intentionally points out these different components of the armor of like truth and the righteousness that's ours in Christ and uh, and there are some weapons to fight back, a sword that's faith. And, and so he's piecing out these different elements that are being shaped and formed within us daily that we can fight this fight and stand against what inevitably will come. But that would take, a, I don't know, if you got another hour or so, nobody. Okay, so, so yeah, maybe we can post something. Yeah, I think that'd be great. I love that idea of like daily application, mm -hmm. like on a daily basis. Yeah, what do we do on our day-to-day? -day? Yep. How does that make sense to our lives? So our last question then is, how do we reconcile the imagery of good, soldier, good soldiers of Christ with the command to beat swords into plowshares? Great question. 
I can't wait for you to answer this. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, I think really what this comes down to is there, there's these tensions that you see in the Bible uh, all throughout. Uh, in this particular circumstance, there's a passage in Hezekiah where he is uh, basically they're rebuilding the temple walls. And, and one of those particular points is he's talking about have a sword in one hand and have a hammer in the other. Mm. So it's kind of this balance where we're being pulled between that of like acts of peace when we see like things that are working against the kingdom. Uh, and then there's also like, you know, where we have to stand up for the faith and be strong in our word. Um, and so it's kind of, you know, we see this passage of beating the sword into a plow. Um, but there's other passages where it's calling us to take up arms. Like Jesus mm. wasn't just someone to always turn the other cheek. He was someone that also flipped like the temple tables. Mm. So uh, there's a time and a place for each action. And that's where it kind of circles back to the second question of like, you know, daily practices to make sure that we are in line with God, whatever that event is and how do we handle it. That's pretty good. Yeah. I, I think I'll go with what you said. Yeah. And, and, and the first four centuries of the church, uh, they would not uh, fight Rome, Rome and Caesar's conquests. They refused to because they were the people of God. So they were prepared to die and suffer. Um, they fought. The words there, God, are so powerful. You have no rival. You have no equal. Now and forever you reign. And we believe these words are true. So we worship you for you are worthy of all honor and all worship. Thank you for who you are, what you do. Keep us awake. to your glory, to your power, to your awesomeness. Pray. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. And amen.